0: Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby.
1: Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisby and in today's program, I talk to James Turk of goldmoney.com and Michael Hampton of globaledgeinvestors.com. We talk gold, the US dollar and the Weimar Republic. Also on the program, I talk to the CEO and the geologists of Kefi Minerals about their exciting grassroots gold exploration in Turkey. A reminder that nothing you hear in this program constitutes advice to buy or sell anything. It's just an expression of opinion only.
0: Commodity Watch Radio at MindSight.com.
1: Monday morning, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to this interview. The gold price just hit $830. I'm sitting with uh, two of the biggest gold bugs around, James Turk, founder of Gold Money. Hello, James. Hello, Dominic. And I'm sitting with Michael Hampton, who you all know as Dr. bubb and Mr. Goldstock Trader himself. Hi, Mike. Hi, Dominic. Um, let's start with James, this move we've seen in gold since since August. I think it's taken all of us by surprise with uh, just the sheer size of it and the velocity of it. Um, where are we? I mean, you, your book is called The Coming Collapse of the Dollar. Maybe you should recall it The uh, Ongoing Collapse of the Dollar.
2: Or The Collapse of the Dollar, well, because it is the in the process of collapsing. You know, as bad as it's been for the dollar, I think there's more to come over the next six to nine months and I think we're headed toward a major currency crisis, uh, you know, similar to what happened in Argentina a few years ago or with the Russian ruble before that. Uh, I I do believe that the the dollar is headed for a collapse. It's on what I call the path uh, to the monetary uh, fiat graveyard, fiat currency graveyard, Um, and sooner or later it will get there if it doesn't get off that path. And right now, there's nothing being done in Washington by the Federal Reserve, by the Treasury, by the President, by the government uh, to get the dollar off that path. It's pretty scary.
1: One thing that, that surprised me is that um, the two lowering of interest rates we've seen in the last two or three months, even though in stock to, stock market terms are in a bull market, they, they didn't need to do that.
2: Yeah, you know, when they lowered the Fed... Uh, when the Federal Reserve lowered interest rates by half percent back in September, I think that was really quite significant. What were they seeing about the economy that scared them so much that they had to go a half point rather than a quarter of a point? In other words, they were willing to risk a collapse in the dollar by lowering interest rates more than the market expected. And look what's happened to the dollar since then. And also, we see the economy now in the U.S. falling off the edge of a cliff as well.
1: Mike, when I first met you a few years ago, and, and I was buying. Um, gold bullion. I don't believe you own a great deal of actual bullion yourself. You own a lot of gold stocks. I own no don't bullion at the moment. And the, But one of the things that, um, you know, I was saying, I was, re- I read James's book and I was repeating a lot of the arguments to you, and you said, you agreed with them all, but you said, we're not there yet. But at a certain point, you were going to switch out of stocks and into bullion. Are we there yet? Uh, we may be. I mean, I'll just give you an example of, of the dangers of the
3: trading approach. It's served me very well over the years, so... I'm not ready to bin it yet, but uh, here's the danger. Uh, back in October, uh, I started switching out of some of my gold share positions, and into into cash. And I, I went to about uh, 30% cash in my account, keeping some core positions uh, in, in gold. Um, and I've managed in the last few weeks to go about, down to about 10% cash. But um, the problem is that um, if you switch, if you trade in and out, and you don't get as big a pullback as you expect, or the pullback doesn't last as long as expected, you may not get your cash back in before it takes off again. And I think what we've seen in this this little dip we saw from 800 to 780-something, 850 to 780-something.
1: It lasted about two days.
3: It was a very brief, I mean, it came in three waves, ABC, which, which is what... I expected, and I managed to get back in on the first day, that, but it, it only came down to the first of three support levels. I saw three support levels, one around 790, 785, one around 750, and one around 720, and we only came down to the first of those levels. I decided I should buy a little bit of gold uh, you know, shares and and, and, uh, and options. but. Uh, you know, I'm only, you know, partly invested where I'd like to be wholly invested if this is the real thing. I mean, it's looking more every day, especially this morning, like we're in we're in for a real move here.
1: Yeah, I mean the 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 gold price has gone from what seven eighty halfway through last week, in three or four days it's gone up to eight thirty. That's a fifty, almost a sixty dollar move in three days and barely anyone's spoken about it.
2: Yeah, actually, that's actually a good sign. It's very bullish. But, you know, I think what we have happening here is a short squeeze, you know, a real classic short squeeze. We had uh, COMEX open interest recently at all-time record highs, and even with the pullback, we saw some long liquidation, but open interest still stayed over half a million contracts, which is huge. So it seems like the, the longs are going to take on the shorts, and looks like they're going to squeeze the shorts here. So my guess is is that uh, it could be going up a lot higher over the next week or so, particularly this week as the options expire. We'll see what happens. I think it'll be interesting to see how the commercials react. They're badly beaten this
3: time. I mean, they usually win, but I think they've won just about every contest for the last five years, maybe ten years, and this time they're losing. I mean, the last, well, this time, the <laughs> last few weeks and a couple of months, they've been losing. But what's their reaction going to be if, if they can't move the gold price around the way they want to?
2: Well, I think we're going to get closer and closer to a free market in gold, which has been something that I've been waiting for for a long time. And if we get Toward a free market in gold, we're going to definitely see a four-digit gold price in 2008, which is which which is what my expectation has been. Uh, I think we're going to go a lot higher, and it's partly because you know again the monetary problems, not just with the U.S. but everywhere, uh, are becoming more and more apparent. The whole world is inflating; people are looking for safe alternatives, and you know gold is the safest of them all because there's no counterparty risk when you own gold bullion. I think
3: all those governments that uh, link their currencies to the U.S. dollar and then kept the reserves in dollars must be feeling very unsafe at the moment.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we saw Kuwait break its link to the dollar. There's rumors now that the other Gulf countries are going to be breaking their link to the dollar. Uh, It's a question how long before, you know, Hong Kong and China uh, break their link to the dollar. But it looks like the dollar is, is headed lower. The bigger question, though, is as the dollar heads lower and goes into this black hole, Is the gravitational pull of the dollar going to pull the other currencies with it? You know, recognizing that these other currencies are backed mainly by dollars. Uh, As the dollar goes to oblivion, are the other currencies going to be pulled into oblivion with it? Yeah, that's uh, something
1: that interests me. I mean, I know generally you're bearish on unbacked currencies, James, but sterling has been so strong. Well, certainly against the dollar and maybe less so against the euro, but, um, so we've not seen the same dramatic rise in the gold price in sterling terms, but I think sterling's strength is purely the, the dollar's weakness, it's, it's got no other fundamental backing to it. Do you have a, a, an outlook on sterling?
2: Um, it's not my favourite currency, um, I would probably go with the Canadian dollar, uh, given the fact that it's a resource-based uh, currency. Uh, and maybe the, even the Australian dollar. Uh, my favorite currency plays right here, though, would probably be the uh, uh, UAE dirham and the Saudi rial, because they're most likely to revalue in the short term. How do you buy those? It's very difficult. You know, they don't have the deep markets, um, there's really no forward contracts. Um, best thing is just to have bank deposits, you know, in the UAE. Is there um, any
3: prospect of gold money finding a way for uh, its, <laughs> uh, its, its clients to buy to buy these currencies?
2: Well, you know, I've made a couple of trips to the, to the Gulf region uh, over the past couple of years, and um, it's definitely an area we're going to be expanding to in the future. Uh, right now we deal in four currencies, U.S., Canadian dollars, British pound, and Euro. But uh, over the next year, we'll probably be adding some additional currencies. I don't know if it would be a Gulf currency yet, uh, but we're definitely looking there. We've added a vault in Zurich now for an additional storage option. Uh, we'll probably have a vault in Dubai sometime next year as well.
1: Have you noticed, James, uh, since August, a lot more people opening accounts with gold money?
2: Yeah, there's been uh, definitely a surge in activity. We're now storing over $250 million of gold and silver. Um, and. Um, we're getting a lot of new activity, and it's, it's pretty much global as well. You know, a lot of people outside of the U.S. are concerned about what's happening to their dollar accounts, and we're seeing a lot of switching out of dollars into precious metals. I think that's going to continue as well.
1: James, let me ask you a question. Um, Mike and I talk junior mining companies a great deal on this show. Do you own a lot of shares in junior mining companies?
2: Yeah, I personally have um, uh, investments in a wide range of uh, um, mining stocks, most of them are producers, but some of them are juniors, pre-production you know, type of companies.
1: They have lagged gold in this move. Would you care to speculate as to why?
2: Yeah, I think it's simply because of uh, uh, energy costs. If you look historically, uh, a barrel of crude oil typically costs about 2.3 grams of gold per barrel of crude oil. And for the past couple of years, we've been averaging well in the threes. We hit as high as four grams of gold to buy a barrel of crude oil. What that means is that margins of the mining companies have been squeezed, and they haven't been able to generate the profits that one would normally expect based on historical uh, factors. The other thing is, is that inflation, uh, you know, governments talk about you know uh, inflation rates that are completely unrealistic uh... mining companies are dealing with inflation rates of twelve fifteen percent when you look at the cost of steel chemical uh... chemicals and you know other things even besides energy which is going up so rapidly those are also putting margins on, on, on mining companies and then the other issue is that unless it's a dollar-based producer uh, you've got rising currency costs. So you pay Canadian miners in Canadian dollars uh, and as the Canadian dollar goes up relative to the US dollar, even though the gold price is rising, it's not rising as rapidly in Canadian dollar terms as it is in US dollar terms. So all of these things have combined over the past couple of years to, to uh, put pressure on mining company margins. But having said that, uh, I think the mining companies here are um, very, very cheap and very, very undervalued. And I would, as the gold price moves higher here, I would expect basically a doubling in the major uh, indices. So, say, the XAU index, which is trading now at about 170 or so, uh, I think you're going to see that up over 300 within the next 12 months. That's a big
3: move. I'd like to add to what James is saying. Is uh, Recently, I've been looking to get closer to gold in my gold share investments. And, and the way I've been doing that is... is <clears throat> is buying shares like Royal Gold, which is a royalty company, which is not exposed to the operating cost inflation, the way James is talking about, because they actually get 2% or 2.5%, whatever it is, royalties, in gold. So, uh, they're, they, you know, they're directly benefiting from an increase in gold price, where their expenses are. They've only got 40 people working there, so their expenses are well no under control. So That's one way of getting close to gold. Another one is buying companies that actually produce gold rather than Explorers, which are gold deposits. And, I mean, there's a tiering going on here. It's a little bit like a rubber band. I think we talked about this in the spring, how this might happen, where (coughs) at the top of the rubber band is gold, and then the next rung down would be the ETFs. um, And gold you can get through gold money bullion, and so forth, but the next tier down would be ETFs, which trade more or less like gold. And then you've got royalty companies, And then below that, you have the major gold shares. And I've been buying a bit of those and call options on those. And then you've got the junior gold producers below that, the ones actually in production. You've got the near-term production companies below that. And right at the bottom, you have the Explorers. And you've got rubber band that's really stretched out. And um, it may be, if if a lot of buying comes back into gold shares and explorers, that rubber band will move up faster than than the top does. I'm kind of hoping that happens. But we're not seeing much evidence of it in the last few
4: weeks.
2: Well, one thing we have to keep in mind here at this time of the year also is tax-loss selling. And you can see that in a lot of the juniors that haven't performed well. You know, every bid is hit by somebody willing to sell. And that's part of the reason why the juniors, I think, have been underperforming. But uh, tax loss selling, I think, is going to become less of an issue over the next couple of weeks. And particularly as the gold price goes up, people will be looking across the valley and start picking up some of these things out there that are very, very cheap.
1: I heard you speak the other day, James, and one of the questions you were asked um, was that gold can't realistically challenge the dollar as to be the... um, global reserve currency, if you like, because there isn't enough of it in proportion to the amount of people that there are in the world and in proportion to population growth. You had a very interesting reply to that.
2: Yeah, you know, that's a a common uh, misbelief that people have, um, or an incorrect belief. Um, The reason why gold is money is, first of all, we accumulate it. It's the only thing that we humans produce for accumulation. So essentially all of the gold mined throughout history still exists in its above-ground stock. And that above-ground stock grows by about 2% per annum, uh, which is new mine production adding to the above-ground stock. Now, 2% per annum is approximately equal to world population growth and approximately equal to uh, you know, new wealth creation. So over long periods of time, gold is very consistent in terms of preserving purchasing power and you know there, there are lots of examples. You can, uh, you know, in the 1880s, you could buy a Colt 45 with uh, an ounce of gold. You can still buy a Colt 45 with an ounce of gold. In Roman times, you could buy a, a fine men's toga with an ounce of gold. Um, today, you can buy a, a suit, maybe not necessarily a fine men's suit, because gold's relatively cheap. But you can still buy a suit with an ounce of gold. Um, And that's what gives gold its its purchasing, its consistency of purchasing power over long periods of time. So my point of view is is that there's always enough gold. Um, The other factor, of course, is the circulation of whatever the existing gold is. Um, GDP is a function of money times velocity. So if you have a supply of money and you circulate it more rapidly, you can get a higher GDP.
1: Let's come back to the question of um, December tax selling and juniors lagging. Silver's also been the big laggard. Um, Mike, do you have a comment on that?
3: Well, I, I would agree with what James said about um, this being a time of bargains thanks to tax selling. And uh, I mean, I'll be the remaining cash I have, um, and maybe cash I raised through selling this on it, We'll be going into some tax bargains. I'm looking for at the moment, so I think it's a very good time to buy. And certainly, the silver companies represent some pretty good tax bargains.
1: Yeah, the silver companies look very cheap.
2: Yeah, I agree, and I think silver itself is very cheap. You know, it it briefly broke above its May 2006 high, and then it came back below it. It's you know trying to break above that May 2006 high. Um, and I think once it does, got to, you're going to see a run to $20. And that's what my expectation is over the next several months. So I think silver is, is very good value here. And, and I think the, the concentrated silver shorts, which are the silver equivalent of the gold cartel, uh, I think they're going to have their head handed to them on a silver platter, pun intended, over the next several months.
1: Um, now, James, I, I, uh, I really enjoyed your book. And um, I, I enjoy your various writings on the... Uh, uh, the Gold Money site and on, on other sites. Thank but you. You've done it. my pleasure. You, and you've done a great amount of research into uh, gold price manipulation that goes back as far as uh, Lyndon Johnson's time and probably before. Why don't you write a thriller about it?
2: <laughs> um. There's a non-fiction thriller going on right now, uh, <laughs> and you can read about it at the Gatta.org website uh, you know, as new pieces of evidence come out about how the gold price manipulation is, is being carried out um, and how we're going to see it unfold. You know, eventually manipulation is exposed and it has to end. It happened back in the 1960s. You know, the U.S. government disordered 10,000 tons to make the market believe that $35 were worth one ounce of gold. But everybody realized that one ounce of gold was worth more than $35. And the U.S. government inevitably threw in the towel. It's the same thing now. They've been fighting a, a rear guard action, slowly retreating to try to keep the market thinking that the dollar is worthy of being the world's reserve currency, when in fact it's not. Um, and so they've been trying to cap the gold price, but as we've seen over the past several years, they're fighting a losing, a losing battle. And I think they're about ready to lose the war.
1: James, uh, when you, um, when I interviewed you last year on the show, uh, a few months later I interviewed Jim Dines, and uh, Jim seemed to think that. There's loads of gold in Fort Knox, and when the dollar collapses, America will be in a position to say, let's have a gold-backed currency, we've got all this gold. You have a very different uh, notion as to how much gold there is.
2: Yeah, I'm open-minded about how much gold is in Fort Knox. Uh, First of all, there's been a lot of historical questions raised about it, and and there's never been any independent third-party audit of the exact weight of gold and purity of gold. Uh, Recently, we saw that a number of old bars have been coming out of the Bank of England, and one has to question whether these were old bars that were shipped over in the 1960s from Fort Knox. Was it part of the stuff that we know about that was shipped, or was it some of it surreptitiously shipped and has now come into the market? And perhaps most importantly, I just wrote an article about this recently, is the U.S. government is now acknowledging that the gold stock has leased and swapped gold. Uh, They've started reporting it that way. Uh, which implies that some portion of the gold is swapped. It's been my view that a large portion of the U.S. gold has been swapped for gold in the the Bundesbank uh, in order for that gold to be loaned into the market. There's no lending market for gold in the States. The lending market is in in Europe. So if you're going to lend gold, you need to have that gold in Europe. And uh, I wrote a, an article on this a couple of years ago suggesting that the, the Bundesbank, in fact, had swapped gold with, uh, with the U.S., and the U.S. took that gold and loaned it in the market as part of the price-capping efforts. Jim, can I ask you, um, because I think it's an interesting question for other people as, as well as myself, um,
3: how do you, when you've got hundreds of millions of dollars of gold and gold money in the, in the vault, what procedure do you use to determine that that's actually gold and it's the right fine as quality gold?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. It really comes down to what is our chain of integrity, which is the, the term that's used for it within the market. And we follow the chain of integrity established by the London Bullion Market Association, which is considered to be the highest uh, chain of integrity that there is out there. The, the London Bullion Market is a series of members, from refiners to transport companies um, uh, that, uh, to vaults, that have to be a member to actually move the bars within that chain of integrity. So it's, say, for example, mined by the Rand Refinery, which is where a lot of our gold comes from, uh, handled by uh, ViaMat, which is a certified courier company and stored in the ViaMat vault, which is uh, also certified by the London Bullion Market Association. So you, know, the reason, the, the, you have every reason to believe that, you, in fact, you have gold and not just gold-plated lead. And the other is, uh, aspect of it is that there's never been a bad bar discovered within the history of the London Bullion Market Association and bars are constantly going into the market for uh, fabrication purposes being melted down into jewelry and stuff. If there were bad bars somewhere along the line, if there were some some bad aspects to the process, it would long ago have been discovered. And the final aspect is that if for some reason Uh, you know, against all of the odds, there was a bar that didn't meet the standard that was stamped onto the bar. The refinery accepts responsibility for it, and they would refine and make good on the quantity of the bar.
3: Now, you said something about different types of gold coming into the market. I mean, older
2: gold or gold that's stamped differently. I mean, are you seeing evidence of that at gold money as well? No, at gold money we're not seeing evidence of that because we require LBMA standard bars for all gold and silver that's stored in gold money, regardless whether it's stored in London or stored in Zurich. But there has been uh, a lot of talk about old bars coming in. I have seen some evidence of that, and I was interviewed a couple of months ago um, uh, about this. And my thought was is that a lot of gold came from the States in the 1960s uh, into, into Europe, those 10,000 tons that I mentioned before that was disordered out of Fort Knox. And most of that gold was um, coin melt gold. Um, which was um, nine, ele- uh, excuse me, ten elevenths pure gold, so about ninety-one percent gold, and the rest base metals, which was used as a hardening agent, so that the gold could be melted down into coins, and the coins could be uh, used without chipping and bending and, and scratching quite easily. Um, it's uh, the recent evidence suggests that maybe some of those bars are, are, are coming into the market. It's been described also as bars with cracks and fissures in it. That's a little bit suspect because gold doesn't crack. It doesn't get fissures. It doesn't disintegrate over time. So I'm not quite sure what what those comments are. But it is possible that you're seeing some low-quality bars coming into the market, which is another sign that the gold cartel is scraping the bottom of the barrel and is at the end of, of the rope to try to find physical metal to keep feeding into Maybe the market. Maybe
3: cracks and fissures are in the
1: cartel
2: themselves. <laughs> that <laughs> could, could very well be. That
1: could very well be. Let's um, take the conversation out a little bit. You talk about um, James about the patterns that you have in inflations and the political patterns that accompany the monetary patterns and you've been studying Weimar Germany and you're seeing more and more parallels between that and the states now. Would you care to
2: comment on that? Yeah, um, you know, for the longest of time, um, you know, I wasn't really certain how this was all going to unfold, uh, but it now seems to me we're on the same path that Weimar Germany was. Um, And, you know, people think of Weimar Germany as this massive hyperinflation, but it was really something else. It was a country with a huge external debt. Now, Admittedly, that external debt was imposed on it by foreign military powers rather than self-imposed as it is in the U.S., but that's a, a key similarity, a huge external debt. And the other aspect is that you had demand for the uh, Reichsmark declining, and you see now the demand for the dollar declining. You know, when you look at a currency, we always talk about supply, M1, M2, M3, and we ignore demand. We think that demand is consistent. But in fact, it's not. It can change very quickly overnight, particularly for a fiat currency, if people lose confidence in that currency. And we see the demand for the dollar dropping by central banks uh, getting out of the dollar and diversifying into other assets. Sophisticated investors like Warren Buffett diversifying into other assets. Now we learned that OPEC is concerned about what's happening to the dollar. So all of these things suggest that the demand for the dollar is dropping, which is exactly what happened in Weimar Germany. The demand for the Reichsmark was dropping. Um, but what happened in Germany, this is really very interesting because I've been studying a lot on this recently. I'm not
1: going your parents lived through it as well.
2: Uh, my father uh, my father did, yes. He was born in Austria. Um, what What happened was is that you had the, the head of the, of the Reichsbank, a guy by the name of Rudolf Havenstein, he recognized that the currency was dropping in value, and let's say it dropped ten percent uh, in one year, so you had 10 percent purchasing power than, less purchasing power than the year before. His uh, response to solve that problem was to create ten percent more currency so that you would now have more currency to make up for the 10 percent drop of purchasing power now let 's flash forward to today by talking about adding liquidity to the market Bernanke is essentially saying the same thing that Havenstein was talking about slightly different in terms of terminology and stuff but it's essentially the same type of thing the other similarities of course is that they are both fiat currencies and when you have a fiat currency there's no external discipline imposed on the money creation process so you can have a situation where the federal reserve creates fifty billion overnight because it thinks it needs to add liquidity to the market as it just did over the past uh, past week or so Um, but when you're tied to some external factor, like under the classical gold standard, you're limited as to how much money can be created, and that keeps you off this path to the fiat uh, currency graveyard uh, that the U.S. dollar is now on, and that the Reichsmark uh, eventually followed and reached that graveyard in 1923. So we got
3: a situation here with falling demand, when there's tremendous supply of dollars in the hands of Americans and non-Americans alike, and people who've been holding the dollar as reserve currency, and if, if Few people want it and lots of people want to get rid of what they got, you know, the price could
2: fall very, very fast indeed. And that's exactly my view over the next six to nine months. But it's even scarier now than it was with the Reichsmark from the point of view that the Reichsmark, although Germany was a very powerful country and modern economy at the time, it wasn't the world's reserve currency. Uh, this is the first time in history when we've had a fiat currency as the world's reserve currency, and the dollar is held by people all around the world, by central banks all around the world. It's, it's, it's almost imponderable to consider, you know, what's going to happen when the world's reserve currency goes the same way as the Argentine pe- Peso. I mean, you can look at a country like Argentina and consider the implications. What happens when the world's reserve, ki- c- world's reserve currency goes down this path to the fiat, in- uh, fiat currency graveyard? Do you see
1: the politics following the money?
2: Inevitably, politics do. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, uh, an expert in that area, so I would leave it to politicians to forecast what's going to happen. Um, but you know, in our book, we basically lay out two scenarios. Uh, the bad scenario, where we move more toward fascism and, and authoritarianism, or the good scenario, where we go back to the basics of the framers of the Constitution who put in Article 1, Section 8 and 10 that the money of the United States shall be gold and silver hopefully we'll you know learn from history and follow the uh... The, the path set up by the framers you mentioned the constitution i have to jump in here and, and and you know ask a sort of open question
3: about ron paul i mean ron paul's been talking about the constitution he's been asking hard questions uh... Of greenspan and bernanke for some time and people i think consider him a nutter for quite a while and he's actually beginning to get a pretty good audience i just want to know any comments on ron paul and how his views now are being accepted or not by the american public
2: i i think he's gaining popularity and rightly so he's He's got a very frank, open, honest dialogue. Um, I've known him for about 25 years and I happened to have the opportunity to have dinner with him just about a year ago. I think very, very highly of him. He's, uh, he's asking the right questions, he has the right vision. He wants to go back to basics. He wants to go back to the issues and the points and, and the factors that made the United States a great free country in the first place. And uh, I think, you know, that's the kind of vision that we really need. I wonder how much pain
3: Americans need to be subjected to to realize. I mean, I've said this, I think, on the, my chat board, maybe in an interview. is I mean, the problem really is the American dream is wrong. And the American dream of uh, suburbs and limitless and cheap oil is is, is coming to an end because the, the cheap oil isn't there anymore. Uh, and the American dream means fixing and changing. And a lot of the po- politicians now uh, are talking about the American dream as if it's uh, if, as, as if it's still alive and, and, and can be shared by more and more people. This, of course, is very dangerous and. Uh, It seems to me Ron Paul isn't the only one who's actually pointing towards some kind of a solution to the problems we're facing. And I'm just wondering if the pain's going to come fast enough that other politicians will begin to speak sense in
2: America. Well, you know, that's really a a good observation and a good question. Um, My point is, is, or my view would be that if the dollar falls rapidly and we really have a currency crisis, I think people are going to look at Ron Paul much more seriously and much more quickly. Uh, because he does seem to have the answers, you know, to put uh, the U.S. back on the right path. Um, But we'll see what happens over the next several months. Have you seen any evidence that other people have been picking up his points and and running with them in their own political uh, campaigns? I don't follow it that closely, but I haven't seen anything to suggest that anyone is even close to Ron Paul's vision. Um, I, I know there are some people, and Jim Rogers
3: would be one of them, who've actually reached the point where they're uh, so maybe unhappy living in America at this moment, where they're moving overseas, and uh, Rogers, I think, is moving to Singapore and planning to spend a fair amount of time in Hong Kong, When um, we interviewed him mm-hmm. early this year, last year, um, so we got some flavor of his comments then, but do you see more Americans leaving the states to escape from, uh, you know, times that might be pretty tough over the next year or two?
2: Yeah, I think so. Um, I think a lot of people are leaving their own countries because they're finding it more comfortable living as an expat in other parts of the world. I mean, look at here in London. <laughs> it's hard to find someone who's English anymore. Uh, they're either Eastern European, Russian, or American. I mean, uh, a lot of South Africans as well. So, I mean, and Australians. Um, it's, uh, you, know, you get a lot of ex- expats. <laughs> yeah, a lot of expats. Um, uh, it's, I think it's not just the U.S. I think it's a lot of thinking individuals who don't like the socialist and authoritarian trends in their own home countries are moving to other countries to find a a freer opportunity.
1: But You you always talk a great deal about um, America, James, and your focus is obviously on the American dollar, but you you do spend, you're married to an English lady and you live a lot of the time in London. Do you not think our problems are the same, if not worse?
2: (laughs) uh... yeah your problems are bad too and i must admit the situation here the economy the the real estate bubble also the consumer debt level here in this country is phenomenal it's almost as bad as it is in the u.s. uh... you've got some serious problems as well which is why you know uh, while the sterling is rising against the u.s. dollar it's not rising against the euro but even if you look across the channel to to europe i mean france is falling apart now uh... you've got all of these strikes and you know and chaos um, um, plus you've got you know, all of the demographics there that are working against the, all of the promises governments have made for social benefit programs. But we've got some tough times coming up, and I think a lot of government promises all around the world are going to be broken.
3: It's interesting in the minds of money that, uh, that the talk given by Frank Holmes, and he has some kind of an answer to some of these problems, which is he talks about how um, the, the best investments that governments can make are sensible investments in infrastructure. And he talks about how, uh, you know, in investments in infrastructure infrastructure get repaid by more growth and, and stronger growth in those countries. And we're seeing huge investments in infrastructure in China. We're now seeing big investments in infrastructure in Hong Kong. This has uh, taken shape recently. Um, you know, I'm wondering if, I mean, America obviously needs to improve its infrastructure. There's some talk about it. And Frank actually mentioned at the uh, Minds and Money that, he reckoned that politicians would get behind this as a way of creating jobs, and
2: sensible investment in infrastructure. So maybe that's one way to get through all this. You mean like a Roosevelt Public Works program from the 1930s? Yes. Well, maybe, may
3: you know, we have to get to a point. I mean, my own theory is, and one of my pet theories, is the American suburbs, uh, and I follow James Heller-Kunstler uh, in this, are the biggest uh, misallocation of capital in the history of humankind. Uh, need to be restructured or written off. And I think they will be both restructured and written off where parts of them will become ghettos and horrible to live in. Other parts of them will become nice to live in because they're connected through mass transport and other infrastructure investments. So I think we're going to be seeing more and more money thrown at sensible, hopefully sensible, infrastructure investments in the U.K. and in the U.S. and other countries. Because the alternative is, is pretty dire. I mean, having people do make work that doesn't
2: achieve any purpose is, is, is not as good as having people do something that actually builds the country and builds its future. And the point I was making about Roosevelt was that that was all borrowed money. The U.S. Can, cannot borrow any more money. You know, everybody says the U.S. is the wealthiest country in the world, and admittedly, it's got a lot of tangible assets that are valuable. But look at all of the debt that it has. The U.S. government alone is estimated to have fifty-seven trillion dollars of direct and indirect debt obligations. Uh, you know, by any imagination, the U.S. is not the wealthiest country in the world. I think the fact that people say that and and think that uh, and accept it without question is just a sign of a bubble, and it all relates to the biggest bubble of them all, which is the U.S. dollar. Well, the U.S. living standard is declining uh, now as
3: the dollar falls, and and I mean everything's hitting it. Um, property is dropping. Um, and so values of, of American assets are dropping because property prices are falling. But at the same time the sort of gold value of those properties or euro value of those properties or rem and value of those properties is dropping even faster because the dollars
1: are
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: I must say, I have a lot of cash in sterling and I earn all my money in sterling, I'm really nervous about sterling. It's not too, li- too late to get out, but I kind of think sterling's where the dollar was maybe a year or two ago.
2: Yeah, you know, it might be one of the ones that gets pulled into the black hole uh, before some of the others, um, in, in part because of, um, you know, the ties, to, the natural ties to the dollar as well. Um, it's not my favorite currency. If I had to give it, hold a currency today, it would probably be something like the Canadian dollar, uh, or on a short-term basis, my favorites would be the Gulf currency countries, the UAE dirham or the Saudi rial.
3: James, and you, you may have done this work or you may not, but I've spent a lot of time looking at uh, home builders versus interest rates, and uh, I look at certain like the discovery crossover point in that it, it, it helps to see the graph, but in general, it involves uh, home builders breaking an uptrend at the same time that interest rates break a uh, downtrend, and that magic crossover point happened both in the U.S. and the U.K., but it happened at different times. And there's a gap of 17 months. The U.S. went through this uh, this turning point about 17 months before the U.K. The U.K. went through it. Um, U.S. in July of uh, 2005, and the U.K. went through it right at the end of last year. So I, I like to say that the U.K. Uh, property market is just over a year behind the U.S. market, and on that basis, uh, you know, we may begin in 2008 to see a fall in in sterling as as the U.K. government tries to. Uh, support its property market by bringing down interest rates.
2: That's an interesting analysis. How long does the trend go before they reverse back the other way, typically? It
3: hasn't happened yet in the U.S., but I I guess uh, three to five years.
2: Yeah, that would be my guess, too. If you go back and look at the late 70s uh, and early 90s, you know, the big uh, real estate problem bust back then with the savings and loans. You know, people today are saying, oh, this problem is going to be fixed in, you know, six months or three months. I think that's uh, wishful thinking. You know, real estate problems take years, not months, to resolve themselves. Exactly,
3: because it's not a problem of the financial fabric. I mean, the financial fabric has, of course, died in the property crisis. But the real problem in the U.S. is too much supply of houses. Um, and that problem doesn't get fixed in a year. It takes years and years to
2: fix it. Yeah. Mike, i got a question for you. you know, you've been years and years of experience in uh, derivatives, having traded for a major U.S. bank for many, many years. What do you think about the mountain of derivatives that's being built up around us? And, you know, also, we just saw over the last six months one of the highest historical six-month growth rates for more derivatives. Well, that's a really
3: interesting question because uh, that growth has been happening at a very dangerous time because um, I think there's money to be made or, uh, you know, investments to be protected by trading these derivatives. So that's one thing that's driving the banks to to do this. They're they're making money from trading them as their customers, hedge funds and so forth, look for this type of protection. Uh, But at the same time as the trend of growth is there, the banks don't like each other's risk very much anymore. I mean, there's, there's a fallen appetite for, for Chase liking uh, Citibank's, uh, not Chase, but Morgan liking you know, Citibank's risk and and, and and so forth. I mean, bank to bank, they're getting nervous. So, I think this trend is headed in a very dangerous direction.
2: What will be the fallout from that, in your view, as the derivative mountain implodes? Well... Or will it implode? Will it just continue to go sky high?
3: Well, I, 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 I'll just backtrack a little bit before I answer that because uh, one thing is that you were talking about the um, money, uh, sorry, velocity of money, and um, when you're looking at derivatives portfolios, I think you have to keep in mind there's a velocity of derivatives. Whereas if, if, if James sells a derivative to Dominic and he sells it to me and I sell it back to James, it may not be the same derivative by the time it comes back. And by going around that chain, it's actually creating positions on the books of each of us. And to some extent, those risks can be netted out. But if that derivative gets traded around faster and faster, the books build up, where the actual risk may be a lot smaller than it looks. And I think one reason the banks haven't blown up before is that there's a lot of footprint of velocity of derivatives which have left uh, you know a trail of balance sheet of derivatives uh, on the balance sheets of these banks and where the real risk didn't increase as much as as expected. The problem is, though, if there's there's a big volatility after those derivatives have been traded, then there are losses and profits to be sorted out in each of those trades. If the banks don't trust each other, they're not going to want to make those payments back and forth, and that could be very, very dangerous indeed.
2: Yeah. Is there any truth to the point of view that derivatives were put on by rocket scientists who are only uh, looking three months out and the, the bonus that they're going to be making every quarter and not really having any long-term view of what the long-term implications of the, those derivative positions would be?
3: I think anyone who's been involved in derivatives business in the bank has seen evidence of that. I certainly have in my career people doing trades that, 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 that pipe the balances and pop, that push their balances up and the next year those, the trades became came unstuck. But what's really interesting is some of the more complicated instruments are very hard to value so you may actually have a situation where Bank A and Bank B do a trade together. They have different ways of accounting and measuring and calculating the value of that trade. So they're both recording a profit on that trade. So at the end of the year, they both get a profit. But hey, guess what? There's only one derivative there, and there must be a real winner and loser. So something's gone wrong. And they don't, know, they don't discover this until
1: much later. Yeah, it's frightening. Okay, gentlemen, this is fascinating stuff. Um, let me ask you a question, James. We, we, we all know uh, Mike's view on UK real estate. Um, in times of monetary turmoil, times of inflation, hard assets rise in value, and you've, you've been a bull on tangible assets. What do you think of our UK real estate market?
2: I'd rather own a piece of property in the UK than have a sterling bank account, or a sterling bank deposit, to be quite honest. Um, I'm very concerned about counterparty risk. Um, we saw the problems recently with uh, Northern Rock. Um, when you have counterparty risk, you're, you're relying on someone's promises. When you own tangible assets, you have something real.
1: What about a real uh, a tangible asset with a big mortgage on it?
2: Uh, well, then you're adding another level of risk to it. Um, if I had to put a mortgage on it, I'd probably have a U.K. tangible asset with a U.S. dollar mortgage, you know, if that could be arranged. <laughs> uh, but I tend to avoid debt. I don't like it, um, you know, adds a level of risk. And, you know, when you're but talking... Is
1: the only way you can buy a house in the U.K. at the moment?
2: Well, yeah, things have become very, very expensive. But, uh, you know, then you have to have the cash flow and the certainty of cash flow to service that debt. So um, it, it's, a tough, it's a tough question. Jim, okay. what
3: happened to real
1: estate in Weimar Germany?
2: went way up just like the german stock market went up just but like they this didn't have
1: mortgages they didn't have debt. On they that, didn't I'm
2: have saying. debt that's true there's not a debtor country and there wasn't any huge level of consumer what debt. what happened to rents uh well that's interesting because most of the contracts were fixed and a lot of the renters um the owners of property um, did not do well on the rents in terms of having the, um, uh, the income, but they still own the, the, the building, the, the apartment block, or whatever it happened to be at the end of the day. They still own that tangible asset.
1: James, I know you've got to go. As we uh, close, uh, just outline your trading strategy going forward.
2: Well, it's the same thing that I've been saying for years. I'm, I'm not really a trader, I'm accumulator, an accumulator. Uh, what I recommend is every month, month in, month out, Um, You take your overvalued dollars and buy undervalued precious metals. And uh, I've been saying this since, you know, gold was in the 300s. Gold is still cheap today. Uh, I just did an analysis using my FEAR index recently. Buying gold today at $800, 800, just over $800, it's like buying gold in 1971 at $42.65, allowing for both the inflation of the dollar over the past 30-odd years, as well as the debasement of the dollar.
3: And what like happened from $42? Yeah. It yeah. went up by 20 times? It went
2: up by 20 times. So we still have a lot left in this bull market. And you know, just continue accumulating it, and you'll be happy years from now as you look back to t- to today.
1: Okay, and Mike, your trading strategy as we go forward? Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to look here very carefully at the uh,
2: tax oh, bargains we were talking about earlier as a place to put some money. Good
1: stuff. Well, um, as we close, James, do you want to give out the website?
2: Yeah, I'm the uh, founder and chairman of Gold Money, and you can find me at uh, www.goldmoney.com.
1: And your book is called?
2: The Coming Collapse of the Dollar, which I co-authored with uh, my good friend John Rabina.
1: Soon to be
3: called The Current Collapse of the
2: Dollar. <laughs> Absolutely. It's going to be coming out in uh, paperback in the first of the year, and... Um, uh, Doubleday is talking about calling it the collapse of the dollar, but I think they're going to stick with the original name.
1: John Rubino is a clever guy. He's written one book, The Coming Collapse on the Dollar by Gold, the other book, The Coming Collapse in Real Estate, and uh, he's got a new one out, Green Stock Investing. So.
3: Exactly. Um, I'd just like to make a, a, a mention that if people want
1: to post about these issues to come along to globaledgeinvestors.com. Great. Thanks very much, Mike. Thanks very much, James, and see you next year.
2: Thank you, Dominic. You're listening
0: to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee.
1: Kefi Minerals are exploring for copper and gold in Turkey. They trade on London's AIM market under the ticker symbol KEFI, uh, K-E-F-I, with a market cap of 4 million. Their year high was about uh, 4.75p, just under 5p, and the year low was just below 3p. Their chairman is Harry Adams, and he's sitting with me now. Hello, Harry. Good morning. Good morning, Dominic. And their MD is Geoffrey Rayner. Geoffrey, hello. Good morning, Dominic. And their exploration manager is Malcolm, Malcolm Storman. Malcolm, hello.
5: How's it going, Dominic?
1: Very good, thanks. Right, now, um, we'll start with you, Harry. Uh, why don't you give us a, a quick uh, overview of Kefi?
6: Well, uh, we like to um, do something a bit special in terms of being competitive against the rest of the industry in our own unique way. And uh, Turkey is a, a special case in, in um, Europe or greater Europe in that uh, the cat's out of the bag there in that country that the geological potential has attracted over 20 companies from outside Turkey, several majors and many juniors, uh, largely from Canada. We set up Kefi with a particular business model in mind whereby we'd attract and build not just a, a team of uh, specialists from outside Turkey, particularly from Australia, but also attract Turkish shareholders and uh, managers and the field crews. And so we set up Kefi as a separate company to attract, if you like, an and make it a a competitive force in Turkey with Turks involved. And It's only a year ago, it's hard to to believe it's only a year ago since we set the company up, and uh, Jeff was appointed as managing director because he was the team leader that discovered a major discovery at Emed Mining in Slovakia, and uh, we have high expectations of Kefi, and we're very pleased the way it's travelling.
1: Let's uh, turn to you now, Jeff. Um, as well as making that major discovery uh, in Slovakia, y- you also made a major discovery in, with the gold ma- mines of Sardinia back in the day. Do you want to tell us a bit about that?
4: Yes, uh, thanks very much, Dominic. Um, I was in Sardinia for about seven or eight years with, with uh, gold mines of Sardinia. Um, we had a small operating mine, and a couple of uh, other prospects which were uh, eventually expected to develop into mines, And um, we had a large exploration portfolio. We made a brand-new discovery in an area with uh, no old workings at all. It had large potential. We had um, a gold footprint of over four kilometres long and uh, up to about a kilometre wide. And it was uh, significant enough to attract uh, a few majors, um, initially homestake mining. They got uh, swallowed up by Barrick, and Barrick didn't particularly like working in Europe, so they dropped it. And subsequent to that, goldfields. Uh, came and picked it up. Unfortunately, the situation in, um, in Sardinia and, uh, is that there's a new governor there who doesn't particularly like mining and, uh, he's more or less strangled the industry to a, to a standstill. And, uh, that's more or less why we, we got out of Sardinia and, um, why we particularly like exploring places like Turkey where there is a track record, um, of new mines that are being permitted. Um, in the last uh, five years, there have been two mines. As recently as last year, uh, the Kisledag mine was opened in June, and there are three other operations in the feasibility stage. Which uh, uh, I think the closest to production is uh, somewhere middle of this year. So there should be three mines in Turkey, which uh, in, in in production in five years, which is significant.
1: So just to confirm, this in Sardinia, the they. There's a huge gold discovery sitting there unmined because, because of a, an obstinate governor.
4: Yeah, and make things a little bit more complicated. It was um, just inside the, the, um, the perimeter of a military training ground. <laughs> so, but uh, we did get permission to drill, and uh, but we only had a short window when the, when the military went on holidays.
1: Now, um, when we sat at Mines and Money yesterday, you, you gave me a, a, an overview of your various assets in yes. Turkey, and you've got hundreds as well as this uh, extensive database. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't you uh, go through some of the assets and tell us uh, what you've got and uh, what discoveries you've made and how far down the road you are?
4: Um, yeah, well, it, uh, it goes back uh, a couple of years uh, with Harry and uh, EMED, where uh, it was incubating uh, the idea there to. Uh,
1: I should just say EMED own 31% of Kefi, 34% of Kefi. Yeah.
4: About 20 years ago, uh, three very famous uh, Australian geologists were working in um, Turkey and Greece and they spent uh, well over three years um, exploring uh, east-west and north-south of Turkey. They accumulated extensive data on um, on, on Turkey, including uh, 100 uh, priority prospects uh, for which they gathered uh, basic data and, and uh, c- actually drilled on a few tenements as well. Uh, in Turkey, that data isn't uh, collated and stored in a central database. So it's retained and it's a unique proprietary database which uh, EMED bought and um, Kefi subsequently bought off EMED in the um, in the float of Kefi in December last year. And, um, we went to the float with some um, exploration ground that was uh, generated by uh, EMED's Georgian geologists who uh, uh, noticed some um, alteration in... Prospective rocks close to the the um, Georgian border, and happened to be free. We had picked it up. We also picked up another quality prospect near Gumushane. Um, so we started the the company um, last year on on that basis, a proprietary database, um, which gave us uh, an advantage to to explore in Turkey and uh, two large packages of tenements. Since then, we've um, built on that. We've um, quickly acquired um, uh, five other prospects. We've built up a, a quality team. Uh, Malcolm Storm is our exploration manager. He's uh, been an exploration geologist uh, for over 20 years. He now lives in Turkey. His wife is Turkish, and uh, uh, it's been quite an asset to have him. And he also has a track record of uh, discovery success. And uh, further to, furthermore, we made a discovery in September this year, and uh, it's a brand-new discovery, and uh, Malcolm responsible, was responsible for that. That's at Artvin, and that was our pr- latest uh, press release, where we uh, discovered uh, gold cropping out on a road outcrop in the Artvin prospect. We've since um, expanded that uh, discovery to a uh, uh, well over one and a half to two kilometres long in uh, soil geochemistry. We've uh, we're now just finished our exploration work due to the winter season on that particular prospect, but. Uh, we are quite encouraged, we've got up to 2 grams per tonne gold in the soils, which is very high, and uh, we expect to be uh, uh, advancing that to a uh, drill prospect very early next year. Our second uh, prospect, which is uh, we're quite excited about, is a, a vein, um, an epithermal quartz vein, which we want in a tender. Uh, we had uh, indications of the potential of this vein from our database. We bid in the tender, we want it. and. Um, we drilled it in uh, July, August. Unfortunately, we didn't drill deep enough because it's been mined by the Romans, uh, extensive mining over 200 metres long, and uh, we were surprised that they went down as, uh, as deep as 50 metres. Um, there are three veins and uh, extensive workings on all three veins, and so we've got to turn around and drill back underneath those. There are bits of float which have been brought up from depth that we've sampled, and uh, some of the grades have been spectacular with up to 150 grams per ton gold, over 1,000 um, grams per ton silver. So uh, the Romans wouldn't have mined anything low-grade, so uh, they had to have seen the gold, so expecting um, that uh, when we redrill it in uh, early next year, that uh, there should be bonanza shoots. We're expecting bonanza shoots underneath these uh, old workings.
1: Um, if it was already a mine you know two thousand years ago uh, under the Romans, and let's say you get those bananas shoots, um, what I mean how quickly could you turn it into a, a, an actual producing mine?
4: <clears throat> well normal, normal time frame in a country uh, that uh, doesn't obstruct the process of mining, uh, it would take uh, you know at least a year and a, a bit to to drill it out, and then you would have concurrent to that. Um, engineering studies, environmental studies and the normal time frame and construction, building a, a plant you'd be looking at uh, at least uh, two and a half, three years and uh, in Turkey uh, you know, there's been um, no obstruction by the government in um, developing these mines so you could expect something along those time frames
1: Just uh, on the subject of Turkey um, are any of your assets close to the Kurdish border?
4: Um, our, no, most of our um, uh, tenements are in western Turkey, Anatolia, and uh, uh, up in the, um, the Pontides, in northeastern Turkey. But um, we are exploring um, all over Turkey, and uh, uh, we've encountered no real problems anywhere we've gone. Uh, obviously, we stay clear of the, the you know, the, the border counties between Iraq and Iran and uh, Syria, um, but. Uh, in general speaking, um, you know, a large uh, quarter or a third of eastern Turkey is Kurdish, but we've encountered absolutely no problems with the people there.
1: Let's say you, you hit uh, some bonanza grades. Is the plan to sell the assets on, to get taken out, or uh, to go ahead and uh, mine yourself? I don't know if I should ask Harry that question. or if, Well, I'll ask you that question.
4: Sure. Um, I think that um, uh, Kefi is in, is in a u- unique position because um, we have... the the geological staff that have been involved in grassroots discoveries. They've also been involved in resource drill-outs. They understand what's required there with uh, um, all of the quality assurance and quality control and taking a resource to a uh, reserve and resource stage. Um, We've been involved in feasibility studies and um, myself, I worked in a mine for uh, three years in Kalgoorlie and uh, Malcolm's also had mining experience. We also have the the, um, uh, relationship with EMED um, where we're able to tap into their skill base and technical base and commercial skills that, that come along with, uh, with EMED from Harry to their chief geologist to their head of regional development. So um, I, I feel quite confident that we could actually take it to a mining stage and if we wanted to develop ourselves we could also do that.
1: Now, um, you've mentioned the the old Roman mines, was it Artvin? No,
4: uh, Deren and Tepe.
1: And Artvin was where you made the gold discovery by the road. That's right, that's correct, yep. Um, Why don't I I turn the conversation over to Malcolm and Malcolm you tell us about uh, a couple of the other assets.
5: Okay Dominic, um, we have a spread of tenements uh, right across Turkey. Uh, At the moment we have seven project areas, about 26 individual tenements uh, to make up those seven project areas. Uh, As Jeff said, our main two areas are currently in the Artvin project up near the Georgian border and the Derin and Tepe project uh, in western Anatolia. Uh, We also have uh, recently picked up another epithermal vein system not that far from Derin and Tepe. This was previously held by the MTA, the the government's exploration arm. Uh, They did some drilling there and they found gold and silver in this epithermal vein system and we have acquired part of it in a successful tender and then uh, there's more tender ground coming up in the near future, which we'll also be pursuing, and hopefully we'll obtain that ground as well. Uh, we also have ground at Gumashani in the Pontides region, uh, also in northeastern Turkey. Uh, there's a large alteration system there, which is uh, visible on ASTER data. ASTER is uh, satellite-based imagery that uh, can pick up different alteration minerals. Uh, there's potential there for intrusive-related and also for epithermal-style mineralisation. Uh, We have another project just east of Ankara, which has um, some copper, molly and some gold anomalism associated with granites. Uh, We're also always receiving submittals from um, junior mining companies, both foreign and Turkish, and we assess those as a matter of um, priority because um, there's a lot of mining activity in Turkey, a lot of interest with small local companies and individuals, and uh, we want to be the company that they approach to offer us their ground. Uh, we seem to be getting a bit of a reputation for, for acting quickly and um, you know assessing their properties and and dealing with them fairly. And out of that, uh, we hope we'll also be generating new targets um, from some of this ground that's on offer. I mean, you seem to have so much going on. How, how many people have you got working for
1: you
4: out there, Jeff? Well, we're um, <coughs> running a fairly uh, lean, tight. Uh, outfit our general manager is, uh, is a is turk who um has got a phd in geology but uh, he got he's educated here in in the uk um we have myself i'm a geologist malcolm we have uh, three other geologists locals and uh, our receptionist is a geologist so uh, we employ uh, all our field teams locally in the villages that we're working in and um uh, we've, we have a, uh, a senior field assistant who also uh, is a, uh, a bit of a gun prospector so uh, um, we, we run a fairly lean uh, tight outfit, we move around to particular areas and we hire locally so we can quickly expand mm-hmm. and, um, and then um, uh, when, that, when that field work is done those, those villages that we employ go back to doing their own, their own thing So uh, we move on to the next project and uh, um, wait for the results on the previous one, and uh, if they're good, we go back to them. So that's the way we're operating at the moment.
1: And, uh, I mean, I'm right in saying you and Malcolm, you're out in the field uh, a lot of the time. You're both nodding away there.
4: (laughs) Yeah, I spend most of the time um, in the field. I'm hardly ever in the um, Izmir office. Um, We took up an apartment in Izmir, and I'm just wondering whether it's a good good thing or not, because I've hardly been there for the last... uh, Four months. I think I've only spent a couple of nights there. Um, you know, just by way of example, uh, uh, Malcolm and I, we spent over three weeks uh, in um, in Turkey. We drove from west to east and back to the middle again. And I think we did a count that in those three weeks we were in 18 different beds in those three weeks. And just it's, it's a little bit hectic at times, but uh, very thoroughly enjoyable. And uh, one day we're up in mountain peaks and. Uh, Next day we're on the hunt looking for quartz veins in, in uh, thick, thickly wooded creeks, so it's quite exciting. Let's
1: turn this over to you Harry, let's give us a quick overview of the company, how many shares outstanding, um, whether there are any warrants, warrants and options, uh, who are the other major shareholders apart from email?
6: There's 108 million shares on issue. Emed owns uh, 34% of them. A group called Starvest owns uh, 20%. Starvest and we seeded the company, um, and the rest is really spread around, uh, uh, you know, retail investors generally. Um, Which I should say, I am one. Yes, I have noticed your interest, Dominic. Um, the um, I think that uh, the, uh, there are no warrants, by the way, it's just incentive options for the senior executives. Um, we, uh, um, just on that note, I might just pick up on a point that uh, you raised uh, via Jeff, and that is that we, we are uh, not, and we're proud of this, uh, we, we are not a group that sets up an office in London or Toronto or Sydney and flies in and out of a place every month or two and does a bit of work and then prattles on to our shareholders about it. We are... We are, a, a, it's a very, very important point. We are real explore, exploration development people. Jeff is actually out in the field all the time. He, 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 you, you know, Dominic, how difficult it is to get him on the phone and learn to come to London to talk to you, because he's actually out doing the work. One of my roles as chairman, which I take really seriously, is to do whatever I can do to keep them out there where the action is, building relationships and, and walking the ground and, and so on. So, e- Emed and the corporate team at Emed do the servicing behind the scenes to make sure that the cafe team are actually out in the field, doing the critical work to build a real company. It's, it, I can't emphasise how strong strong that point is and it does differentiate us from many others, at least.
1: I mean, I have no doubt about that. I see how hard both Jeff and Malcolm work. Um, why don't you tell us how much cash you've got and uh, what your burn rate is and when and if you're going to have to raise do a next round of fundraising I don't know if I should take that if you want to take that question Harry or if you want to Jeff
6: Uh, well I'll just tell you the the cash and the philosophy and Jeff can elaborate on burn rate and anything else he wants but uh, we set up the company as an exploration company only a year ago Uh, as I explained over 50% of it is owned by two strong shareholders who are there to support the company as it goes from milestone to milestone so i know Starvest feels the same i was talking to its chairman the other day and uh, we we treat uh, its raisings as it achieves its performance and its milestones in in a sense as rights issues difficult to formally do a rights issue in london under aim rules it's difficult to actually do a rights issue so you do it by way of placings and try to uh, give everyone the opportunity as best you can so we'll support the company as it it goes from step to step i think at the moment you've got about five or six hundred thousand pounds jeff the winter's closing in a bit on Jeff at the moment in terms of drilling work, so you'll probably sh- slow down your burn rate, but why don't you explain the burn rate more particularly to, to Dominic? Yeah, we're uh,
4: quite uh, conscious about um, uh, uh, conserving cash and uh, doing things efficiently, and um, uh, our burn rate um, without uh, any active exploration is around about thirty to £40,000 and um, per, per month, and depending on the type of work we 're doing if we 're doing just ground surveys uh, low cost um, it 's not much more than that but if you 're doing drilling that 's the, uh, the most expensive uh, um, part of the exploration and uh, typically, you can spend anywhere between fifty and one hundred thousand pounds on per month on on drilling drilling programs
1: as we go forward now into two thousand and eight why don 't you give us an overview of what the, what the plan is for two thousand and eight.
4: Okay. Well, the year hasn't finished yet, and we're still um, assessing prospects. Um, in the last month, we've seen two that we'd like to acquire. Uh, we're working on those. Um,
1: just, when you when you see a prospect that you like, have you found out about it initially through the database, or, or
4: uh, yes, um, we've uh, been tirelessly working on that front. Uh, unfortunately, um, as uh, Harry alluded to before. Um, the uh, the situation in Turkey is quite competitive, and also there are a lot of small miners, Turkish miners and speculators, and um, that works both ways. One, it can be difficult to sow up um, a coherent piece of ground to explore, and two, the the um, the Turkish speculator is is ringing us up for uh, um, uh, an opportunity, and that's uh, happening on a regular basis. It can we can have, you know, four or five a week, or just one or two a week and uh, as I say it, yes, yeah, um, um, and we can use our database to screen out which ones are worthwhile and which ones aren't so uh, in that way we save a lot of time and we can zoom in onto areas that we, we uh, want to focus on if we'll go out in the field uh, we'll inspect it and if it shows the size potential of what we, uh, what we can, uh, what we're interested in and then, and then the next part is the hard one and that is the expectation of the local miner and um, so you know that's how it works. Um, for 2008, we've got uh, already two two prospects that uh, we want to go back and drill. They're almost drill ready, and which is uh, which are uh, Artvin and uh, Darren and Tepe. And um, we also have a, a, a prospect which we are very very interested in. We tried to trying to tie that one up at the moment, and that's all more or less a walk-up drill target as well. So in the first few months of next year. Um, we'll have to wait for the snow to clear out in the high mountains, but uh, in, we're immediately at that, at that level. And um, uh, we'll also have got a, um, a portfolio going back down to, to uh, projects with uh, just geochemical surveys. And over the winter, we'll be uh, concentrating on target generation and generating new projects. Malcolm, if you had to uh,
1: put money on which of your projects is going to be your... Your, your gold mine. Uh, tell us which one it is.
5: Well, the two main projects, as Jeff mentioned, Artvin and, uh, and Derin and Tepe, both have uh, pretty high potential. Uh, the Yannickley prospect as part of the Artvin project is a, is a virgin discovery, so it's never been drilled before, Never, uh, no one's ever done any work like that on it. But uh, personally, I think Derin and Tepe, the epithermal vein system in, in western Turkey, because um, the indications are there that there was significant gold and silver there, given the size of the ancient workings and the depth of the ancient workings. Uh, normally, these workings only go down 20 or 30 metres, and with our drilling, we've found that they extend at least 50 metres, and if not further. Um, and as Jeff said, there's material that's been brought up from deeper down that carries very high grades of gold and silver. And uh, you know, it was hard work back in those days, so the Romans didn't dig holes you know, if it was low grade. And that style of mineralisation, you can get very, very high grades and uh, you can get them into production pretty quickly. The the metallurgy is generally very good and they can make you a lot of money. And uh, I think that that we should get some good results from that one next year, hopefully.
1: Good stuff, gents. Um, I wonder if I can ask you both, uh, Jeff and Malcolm, a question. I mean, you're both geologists and you're both out in the fields. How come neither of you have got beards?
4: (laughs) Well, um, I'm a, um, uh, I don't know whether I'm ashamed to say this or not, but genetically I probably can't grow one because my, my mother is Malaysian.
1: Oh, okay.
4: That's your excuse. What about you, Malcolm? I don't see any Malaysian in you.
5: <laughs> now, my wife gets very upset if I scratch her with my beard, so I don't have one.
1: <laughs> Two clean-shaven geologists, ladies and gentlemen. I don't think such a thing existed. Well, that's fantastic stuff, and uh, it's a very exciting company. And as I said, I'm a, I'm a shareholder, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a real believer in this one. Uh, there's a lot of um, speculation and, and blind speculation with it with explorers, but uh, this is
6: one I kind of trust. Um, as we close, uh, do you want to say anything else, Harry? Oh, I just like to thank you for following us, Dominic. I know there's, uh, you know, there's 2,000 uh, exploration companies in the world, and. Uh, in London there's probably a couple of hundred listed and uh, I know many of them have underperformed and uh, we take our job extremely seriously. We, Our teams are thoroughly professional, truly dedicated and uh, we welcome the support from people such as you because... Uh, It's hard work building a company and we value it. I will say this, um, you said a lot of the uh, explorers in London have underperformed and
1: a lot of that has to do with our aim market and there's just very little um, retail interest or indeed understanding of explorers Um, and I know you've been frustrated by this both with Kefi and with eMed in the past. You talked before about the possibility of, of uh, eMed listing in, on the TSX. Um, is that something you're thinking about with Kefi as well?
6: Well, well uh, I, uh, you, know, you don't have to uh, sort of prattle on about AIM, but I think most people do know that there, there are some, um, let's call it uh, inefficiencies with the method of market making from the point of view of attracting retail liquidity. Now, having said that, uh, EMED has grown from 4 million to 35 or 40 million market cap. So it doesn't mean a company can't grow. It just means that perhaps at times uh, you would do better elsewhere. EMED has decided to uh, dual list next year, um, either on TSX or ASX, but if you like a main board in a mining camp. Um, I I see that as a. It's just the fact that uh, the company is now large enough uh, and given what it has on its plate, uh, you know, should get bigger again uh, to warrant the time and effort of doing that and it'll help, I think. Uh, With Kefi, it's just a matter of when it's ready and uh, that's really up to our performance and uh, when when it's ready, we'll look at the same thing. Great stuff. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much
1: and uh, you fly back to Turkey tomorrow. tomorrow. Is that right, you too? Well, have a nice flight. Travelling economy class, of course.
0: Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight, with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our Bulletin Board at GlobalEdgeInvestors.com. That's GlobalEdgeInvestors.com.